Let us turn together to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, and we will read there in a few moments. I want to give a message that is a follow-up to something that we looked at last Lord's Day morning concerning the new covenant blessings in Christ. And we want to consider especially how the old covenant relates to the new. This is a complex subject in some ways, and I do not claim to have perfect knowledge of it. In fact, if any man thinks he knows anything as he ought to know, he doesn't know anything. (laughs) Uh, So we do want to be growing in our knowledge and understanding of God and his ways and his dealings with people over the course of human history as revealed in his word. I hope to have better insight someday than I have presently, but I want to bring these thoughts at this time and uh, hopefully uh, challenge you and uh, perhaps offer some insight So on the one hand, it's a complex subject, but I think there's also such a thing as taking that which is complex and making it even more complex needlessly. And perhaps the subject is not as complex as we might think. To review just a few things from last Lord's Day morning that we gave in that message in way of kind of an extended introduction to the Jeremiah 31 passage. The Old Testament points forward to the New Testament, and the Old Testament has promises and prophecies and pictures of a coming Messiah of his accomplishment of redemption and the inauguration of his kingdom. And not just the inauguration of his kingdom, but the the growth and advancement of his kingdom and even the consummation of his kingdom. All of that is spoken of symbolically, prophetically in the Old Testament. And I remind you that Testament and covenant are the same term. A covenant is a solemn binding promise or agreement. The Old Testament scriptures from Genesis to Malachi focus principally upon what we think of formally as the Old Covenant. And so the whole of those 39 books is called the Old Covenant. And of course, the New Testament, Matthew to Revelation, deals with the New Covenant in Christ. The 
point that we want to underscore once again here that we mentioned last week is that the Old Testament must be interpreted by the New Testament. We do not interpret the Old Testament by itself. We do not look to the Old Testament to explain and interpret the Old Covenant. Rather, we look to the New Covenant. The New Testament is the final word. The New Testament has interpretive priority in that it explains the Old Testament. The New Testament has the advantage of looking back and giving definition and explanation to what came before. The New Testament gives us full clarification of what God was doing in previous times before Christ. And so a proper understanding of the Old Covenant can only be found in the New Covenant and its explanation. Again, this is simply a matter of letting Scripture interpret itself. And as I said last week, failure here will lead to a variety of degrees of confusion and error. So the question before us is this, how does the New Testament explain the Old Testament? So obviously we're looking in passages in the New Testament where the Old Covenant is under consideration. And I don't think we'll be able to look at all the passages here today, but at least uh, the principal ones. Now, in New Testament language, there are principally two covenants, that which is called old, that which is called new. However, some passages speak of covenants, plural, in existence before the new. And those passages are Romans 9, 4 and Ephesians 2, 12. The Ephesians 2, 12 passage speaks of the covenants of promise. These were covenants before Christ that looked forward to Christ, that anticipated him. That would include certainly the Davidic covenant, and we might even find room there for the Noahic covenant, and of course the Abrahamic as well. But when the New Testament speaks in the singular of the old covenant, it is speaking of that which was instituted at Mount Sinai under the leadership of Moses or under the stewardship of Moses. It is sometimes called the law. And it is contrasted with faith, which is another synonym for the new covenant. Uh, 
Now, one of the principles of interpretation that is, is worth mentioning here is that we look to the passage of fullest mention whenever we're considering any scriptural doctrine or subject, though there will be oftentimes at least uh, several passages that address any given subject, usually there is one passage that stands out as the most inclusive and the most extensive on that subject. And it's really a toss-up as to whether that is in the book of Galatians or the book of Hebrews, but I tend to take the book of Galatians as the passage of fullest mention, really the whole book, but especially chapters 3 and 4. And someday I would love to do an exposition of the book of Galatians. Perhaps we'll have a opportunity for that. But for today I'll just read some selections here from chapter Three in chapter four. We'll read in chapter three, verse fifteen. <clears throat> Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator." Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ, might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, Then are ye Abraham's seed 
and heirs according to the promise. <clears throat> Let's read on into chapter 4. And I think we'll, for the sake of time, just pick up reading at verse 21. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by, <coughs> by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. <clears throat> well, in a way, we would need to read the whole six chapters of, of Galatians. But this, these are the especially uh, relevant parts to, to our discussion here about how the old covenant relates to the new. The covenant with Abraham, according to what we have read here, corresponds more to the new covenant than does the Sinai covenant. This covenant with Abraham was made with his seed, which is Christ. Now, this is the New Testament explanation. We may not see it that clearly reading in the book of Genesis, but we see it clearly reading in the book of Galatians. And this is the final word and explanation. The covenant with Abraham was a promise that could not be broken, nullified, replaced. It is a, it is of permanent standing and it is so because it is in Christ and it is fulfilled in Christ. And back in chapter 3, verse 17, it clearly tells us that this Abrahamic covenant could not be annulled, nullified, canceled by this other covenant that came 430 years later, which, of course, is 
the Sinai or Sinaitic covenant. And most interesting is verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law, that is the old covenant, the Sinai covenant, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. That's Christ. The Sinai covenant was added to a covenant already in existence, already in operation, which was the Abrahamic. And this additional covenant would be in effect until Christ came. Again, verse 19. It served a temporary and preparatory function. And that's all laid out there in the verses talking about the schoolmaster uh, that's over the child until he's an adult. And it's, it goes on into chapter 4, of course. <clears throat> By its very nature, the Sinai covenant was temporary. Until Christ would come. It did not override. It did not nullify the previously existing covenant with Abraham. And so what we have from the time of Moses onward through the Old Testament time is two covenants operating simultaneously. Like parallel lines. For a while. And maybe even more than parallel lines in, in as much as they are intertwined. <clears throat> I kind of think of it as a, a coaxial cable. You have the main cable line running in the middle. Then you have this other cable that's wrapped around it. That's intertwined and, and interconnected. The Sinaitic covenant is intertwined around the Abrahamic. Both find fulfillment in their own way in Christ. The Sinaitic covenant is fulfilled in his obedience and comes to an end. The Abrahamic, we might say, continues on and becomes the new covenant in that it was made originally with the one seed, which is Christ. And so there is this sustained double covenant existence. And in the New Testament, we see these two covenants contrasted. And I think we can say always contrasted. Though both find fulfillment in Christ and both contribute to God's gracious purpose, the emphasis is not how alike they are. The emphasis is how different they are. And according to what we read here and elsewhere, 
I think we have to say this, the essential nature of the Sinaitic covenant is works. The essential nature of the Sinaitic covenant is works, whereas the essential nature of the Abrahamic covenant is grace. Again, we're looking at the New Testament explanation. That's the final explanation. And here in Galatians chapter 3, we have a summary of the Old Covenant. And it's given in various passages, but uh, reading chapter 3, verse 10. For example, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The New Testament summary of the message of Mount Sinai is do this and live, fail to do this and die. On the other hand, the New Testament summary of the Abrahamic covenant is believe and live. There's the contrast. It's not do and live, it's believe and live. And we see that emphasized again and again. For example, in chapter 3, verse 6, Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Or verse 9. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. The promise of God made to Abraham is entered into by faith. Faith in the promised seed. Verse 11. That no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident for the just shall live by faith. That's the formula. Believe and live. And again, in the light of the New Testament, we see so very clearly that Christ has done the doing Christ has fulfilled to the letter the requirements of the old covenant and he alone only ever did or could. He has done the doing and we trust in him and what he has done. Again, just picking up in chapter 3 verse 12, the law is not of faith. There's the contrast. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. This is the way the New Testament explains what happened at Mount Sinai. As a covenant. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that we don't read in verse 14 that the blessing of Moses might come on the Gentiles and so on. It's always looking back to that 
gracious promise in Christ made to Abraham. Now, I believe this helps us to answer this question. Was works righteousness a misunderstanding of the old covenant or was that what Sinai was intended to teach? Was works righteousness a misunderstanding on the part of the Jews? Or was that what they were supposed to learn <clears throat> at Mount Sinai? I believe that that was a right understanding of the letter of the law. It was a wrong understanding of the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law is that which is more foreshadowed in the Abrahamic covenant. And these terms, letter and spirit, as you know, presented in contrast are found in 2 Corinthians 3, and we'll go there in just a moment. But the the concepts are here in Galatians as well. Those in the Spirit following Abraham were able to see Christ in the letter, in the shadow, we might say. And because they were able to see beyond the letter and see the spirit of things, they could delight in the ceremonies and the feast days and the Sabbath days and so on because they saw Christ in those things. But those who saw only the letter without the spirit, that is, they saw Moses only, without Abraham and and without the faith of Abraham and they saw nothing of Christ in those ceremonies they were bogged down in works righteousness legalism that developed into pharisaism these are the ones that were the nominal People in the nation of Israel, they're called the wicked and the evildoers uh, in the Psalms. They failed to see through Sinai to what was in existence previous to Sinai. Now, we had there in chapter 4, we'll not read it again, this allegory of the two covenants laid out, and the same stark contrast is given there, Ishmael versus Isaac, Sinai versus, uh, well, what is fulfilled in Christ. Ishmael corresponds to the Sinaitic covenant, which leads only to bondage. Isaac corresponds to the new covenant in Christ, which brings us to freedom, 
and liberty. Those are the very terms used here in chapters 4 and 5. We're to cast out the bondwoman and her son. That is, we're to reject the old covenant now that the new covenant has come into existence. And the whole point of Galatians amounts to this failure to reject the old covenant as a covenant is a rejection of the gospel. It's a rejection of the new covenant. Well, let me just give a couple of other passages. We'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's some, some extended treatment here, not as much as in Galatians. But uh, 2 Corinthians 3, Paul speaks in verse 6 of being made able ministers of the new covenant or the new testament. Not of the letter, he says, but of the Spirit. This is 2 Corinthians 3, 6. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. That's the Abrahamic covenant that continued on and finds continuation in the seed Christ. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the old covenant, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read... The veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord." And I'll just have to be brief here, but he, he speaks of what was engraved on stone tablets as an administration of death, an administration of condemnation. But what Christ has accomplished is an administration of the Spirit and of life. Again, there's a sustained contrast here. The Sinaitic covenant had no glory compared to the new covenant in Christ. The old covenant was like a veil that kept men from seeing the glory of God. But once men see 
the grace of God, the glory of His grace, the veil is removed. Well, I hasten on here to the book of Hebrews. And we read from this last Lord's Day also, (laughs) because this is where the Jeremiah 31 passage is quoted. Hebrews 8. And we'll just pick up at verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much also is he the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises? For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them he saith. And here's the Jeremiah quotation. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more." In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Well, there's a chapter division there, and I suppose we'll leave the reading there. Hebrews teaches us that Christ mediates a better covenant than Moses did. It has better promises. It has the promises of Jeremiah 31. It's an unbreakable covenant because it's fulfilled in Christ. It's a covenant that has better promises because it reaches the heart of everyone in the covenant community. There is mutual ownership of God and his people. We are his, he is ours. There's personal intimate knowledge of God by the indwelling Holy Spirit, and there is the forgiveness of all of our sins. Those are the things we went over a week ago. And this new covenant is superior to the old and there will never be any improvement upon it. There will never be a newer covenant than the new covenant. It is the final. As we read here in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, uh, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. The covenant instituted in Christ is of everlasting duration. Thank the Lord. Now, there's one other passage I want to look at with you, and that's Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. 
Let's read verses 1 through 9. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. We again have this contrast here between faith, believing, on the one hand, as stated in verse 4, and works or our doing as spoken of in verse 5. This is Paul's consistent teaching on this by inspiration. What I find especially fascinating about this Romans 10 passage is in both instances when he is describing the problem with the old covenant And the blessing of the new covenant, he appeals to Old Testament scriptures both times. And what scriptures does he use? He uses passages in both cases from the Pentateuch, the first five books. His quotation in verse 5 is from Leviticus 18.5. And it reads, <clears throat> Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. And then when he is giving a proof text, we might say, from the Old Testament to establish the new covenant or faith in Christ, he appeals to the book of Deuteronomy. It's a very fascinating thing in itself. And it's Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. For the, well, 11 through 14. This commandment which I command thee this day is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou should say who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou should say who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. 
the way that the New Testament explains Deuteronomy 30 is that right here in this passage, there are shadows of the gospel, the new covenant, Christ. Now, unfortunately, the majority of the nation of Israel didn't get it. They didn't see it. It was, we might say, beneath the surface to them, and they missed it altogether. They only saw the letter without the Spirit. But as you read the book of Deuteronomy, it surely stands out that this second giving of the law, this repetition of it to a new generation, reads in a way somewhat distinct from Exodus through Numbers, in that the requirement of love to God from the heart is emphasized and repeated again and again here in Deuteronomy. And I think we can go even farther than that and say, According to the opening words of chapter 29, there is something of a distinct covenant established here with this generation on this particular day. That's the plain reading of Deuteronomy 29.1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel, not at Mount Sinai, but in the land of Moab, beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb, or Sinai. And it is to this particular portion of Deuteronomy that Paul appeals in Romans 10 when he is proving uh, this particular point about faith. Yes, he could have gone to Jeremiah 31 or, or somewhere, but he goes here to Deuteronomy 30. And so he would reference this passage because it so much mirrors the New Testament or New Covenant in Christ with the emphasis upon the heart and the spirit. This, beloved, is a vivid example of the New Testament explaining the old. And I hope that what we've looked at here today in the time we have had uh, challenges us to Understand the old in the light of the new. Yes, there are other passages that we could look at, Acts 15 and Matthew 5 and and so on, but we've seen four uh, principal passages here. Let me just say a few things in conclusion here, and I can't enlarge on these, but I believe it is safe to say that the Sinai Covenant is never spoken of positively in the New Testament as a covenant. 
The nearest we come to it is 2 Corinthians 3 there where Paul says this administration of death was glorious, but nothing compared to the glory of the new covenant. Now, of course, the law of God is spoken of positively in the New Testament, but when law is spoken of positively, it's not law as a covenant. On the other hand, the Abrahamic covenant, I believe, is always spoken of positively in the New Testament. And you see that in Acts 3, Romans 4, Galatians 3, and so on. <laughs> That's a whole study in itself. We, we see the continuity of God's purpose in the diversity of the covenants. Continuity of purpose in diversity of covenants. And there's so many, uh, you know, tentacles that reach out into other subjects. We'll just try to rein it in here and end on this note. Why is this important? Why do we need this study? Well, first and foremost, we need this perspective so that we might appreciate and rejoice in Christ our Savior, more and more continually and appreciate what he has done. You know, some old writers look there at at all of the commandments of the old covenant, uh, 600 and um, is it 13 or 14, and they say, this is Christ's job description. He fulfilled every jot and tittle of it as our substitute in our place. And he kept the covenant of Sinai perfectly, flawlessly, on our behalf. So let us rejoice in the Lord as we understand these things and in as much as we understand these things. Furthermore, in a practical way, our identity as a New Testament church and not an Old Testament church depends on the the right interpretation of these very issues here. And while we thank God for the Old Testament scriptures and, and preach from them and should preach from them, We should do so from the vantage point of the New Testament and the explanation that the New Testament gives of it. And so I'll just close by saying let's rejoice to be in Christ and a party to the covenant in Christ, which was foreshadowed by the Abrahamic covenant, especially in the Old Testament or in times before Christ. And let's pray that the Lord would give us further understanding and insight so that we might appreciate more our blessed Savior and all that he's done for us. <clears throat> well, as I said, this I don't think this is the, the final chapter by any means, but I hope it's a, a helpful contribution. <clears throat>